So my wife was looking at the, uh, the lesson for this morning and saying, you know what, I taught this already, and uh, that means we've been doing our children's ministry for at least three years, and our kids have been through the entire Bible at this point, which is just pretty sweet. Um, I, I'm pretty thrilled about that. Uh, obviously not every verse, but through every section and, and hitting the, the highlights and some key points. Uh, so yeah, just a cool, cool little milestone. Well, I wonder as we turn our attention to God's Word, uh, how many of us here have worked night shifts? I, I know there's three guys that uh, I think we're sleeping right now. Okay, some of, you, some of you guys know where I'm coming from. Uh, in my limited experience working nights in the oil patch, um, there's nothing quite like it. It's, uh, it's a strange reality. I think as humans, we're pretty obviously meant to uh, be awake during the daylight hours and be asleep uh, at night. It's just weird to, to wake up late afternoon. Uh, in my case, we were always on the road, and so you'd, you'd go down to the kind of low-end hotel, motel, restaurant and get a burger or steak for breakfast uh, and, and head off on the road to work as the sun was going down and, uh, and spend the day in the dark. I mean, we had plenty of lights on the rigs. You could, you could see around you, but you, but, but you couldn't see beyond that. You, you had your existence in this little bubble of light. Um, you couldn't even see the horizon. Everything else is blacked out. Everything else is covered in this heavy darkness. And the worst part of the night for me every night um, was that stretch at about 2.30 a.m. and beyond. Um, you're tired. You put in eight, nine hours already. You still have three, four hours to go. Uh, and, and the worst for me was the cold. I don't know what it is about that stretch. Even the warm weeks of the summer, it would just get bitter chill in the air. And, and it's at that point of the night, subconsciously, sometimes I think even against my own will, you start looking at the horizon. Is that sun coming up? Is it ever going to come up? And there's nothing better. There's nothing that gives more hope uh, than to see that soft glow begin on the horizon. It's not the sun yet. It's just the sun kind of reflecting off of the clouds in the distance. But you know, it's a, it's a promise of things to come. The sun is coming up. It's going to get better. This night will end. And it wouldn't be long until the, the day shift guys would start to show up on site and you'd start to kind of wrap things up for your crew. Um, still a lot to do. Still a while till that happens. It's still a long drive home. Um, but it's coming. It's beginning to end. There's hope. And I think as we uh, turn to Exodus 2 this morning, I think it's that feeling. That feeling of anticipation, of expectancy, of, of the end is near and we can see it on the horizon. I think that's what this passage was meant to do in its original readers. So turn with me to Exodus 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, just slip up your hand. One of our ushers will grab one for you. We want you to have God's Word in your hands. Um, the idea is that I am minimized and we just turn to God's Word together and see what God's Word teaches um, not what I have to say. Um, chapter 1 in Exodus was all about Israel in the middle of the darkness. It was brutal. God had brought them to Egypt. He had promised that He would grow them in Egypt. But intimidated by their numbers, Pharaoh has enslaved them to ruthless labor, labor designed to kill them. 
He commanded every baby boy be just thrown into the river. If any Egyptian was to see uh, a Hebrew boy, they were to throw him into the river. Israel was suffering in in thick darkness, unimaginable darkness. Uh, And God seemed distant and, and far off. He's not present. They cried out to him. They kept looking at the horizon, but the sun was not coming. It was dark. So we round the corner into chapter 2. What we see is this glow beginning on the horizon. It's a long way to go yet. This is far from over, but we can see it coming. There's a promise of hope here. Rescue is on the way. Let me read for us. We're just going to look at verses 1 to 10 this morning of Exodus 2. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put a chi- the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me. And I will give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh, to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Last week, as we began our venture into this book, mentioned that, that Exodus is, it is the historical account, it is the true account of how God rescued Israel out of Egypt, but it's more than that. It's not just God saying, here's how I did it. It's God saying, this is how I do it. He's saying, this is how I work. His rescue of Israel is a, is a model, it's a picture of how he saves his people. And it's meant to point Israel forward. God is saying, this is what my rescue looks like. And he's promised to rescue them from sin and death, not just from Egypt. And he's saying, this is how I'm going to do it. This is how this is going to play out. And more than that, as our series for the, the title for this series suggests, it's not just this is what I do, but this is who I am. I am the God who saves. And this is how I do it on this grander scale. So watching God in, in Egypt at work tells us not only about what he did in Israel, um, it's informing us about what he would do with Christ and, and what he is continuing to do with us. So as we dig deeper in, um, we want to find hope here. And, and as we look at the hope that Israel sees on the horizon, we want to understand this is not just their hope given to them then. This is our hope for us today. This is meaningful for us. So firstly, I think as we read this passage, the first thing we see is we can have hope because God works through weakness. God works through weakness. Verse 4, 
and, and I guess the verses preceding, verses 1 to 4, we see God working so deliberately through weakness in so many ways. The Lord had been silent as they were suffering, as they were in pain. But God is faithful and He's still working out this great plan. And, and here's this key phrase in, in uh, verse 2. This, this ought to catch our attention right away as you're reading along. And it says, the woman conceived and bore a son. Remember, all of Genesis is pouring out of chapter 3, verse 15. There's this promise of the rescuer. I'm going to send the rescuer, a male offspring born of a woman that would destroy the serpent, that would end the tyranny of sin and death in this world. And now, in the middle of this darkness, we read this line, the woman conceived and bore a son. It's not coincidental. That's a marker for us. Wake up. Pay attention. This is going to be huge. This is significant. And yet, everything in the rest of this passage just screams out weakness. Weakness. First of all, um, we're not told the names of the parents at this point. Um, We'll learn those later. All we see here is they're both Levites. They're both descendants of Levi, one of the sons of Jacob. It's kind of cool to think from our vantage point um, that God would later choose the Levites to be his priests, his mediators between God and man. And so we see Moses, who is the the greatest priest of the old covenant, this mediator between God and man, and, and he's a Levite. And of course, he's prefiguring Jesus, who would later come in a much fuller way, be the perfect ultimate mediator between God and man. But at this point in history, that hadn't happened yet. And being a Levi at this point is nothing special. In fact, it's, it's, it's pretty weak. It's pretty lowly. In those days, in that culture, the firstborn son was significant. That was everything. Your firstborn son would be the position of honor and authority in the family. And um, when the father died, if he had four children, he would break his estate up into five pieces and give two of those pieces to the firstborn son. And he would take over the place of authority and honor in the family. And so Jacob's first son of his 12 sons is Reuben. And we would expect that this promise that's been passed down would come then to Reuben. And he would be the one of honor who would, who would lead this family into the next generation. But Genesis 49, as Israel, who is Jacob, is is on his deathbed and he's giving out this final blessing. This is that key moment where he's basically prophesying what will happen to his children. And and we're expecting now he's going to hand this honor to Reuben. Instead, he he brings up Reuben's past. He brings up his sin. Reuben um, slept with his father's concubine. And so... Jacob essentially kind of removes him from the will. He still gets a a place in the nation of Israel, but he says, you're not not the one. So next we're left looking, who's who's next in line? What what comes next? And next is Simeon. And again, no. And Jacob actually deals with Simeon and Levi together. Um, Their sister Dinah was raped. And, And Simeon and Levi conspired together and wiped out an entire town ruthlessly, violently. And if you're reading on our through the Bible in the year reading plan, you read that just this week in Genesis 34. And so they're both cursed. Jacob says, no, um, you're going to be spread out through Israel. And it's really cool um, how God takes that 
curse. And, and Simeon gets this weird plot of land. If you ever notice, there's the, the tribe of Jacob when the land is portioned out. When they get to the nation of, of Israel, they get to the land of Canaan. Simeon has this weird little circle in the middle. And, and eventually, they just were kind of overtaken and dispersed. Um, they didn't have a long-standing piece of land. And Levi, God actually turns that curse into a blessing as the Levites are spread all over the nation of Israel as priests. Um, But at this point in history, again, we're looking for this blessing of the oldest son, the promised rescuer. It's not going to Reuben. It's not going to Simeon. It's not going to Levi. It falls eventually to Jacob's fourth oldest son, to Judah. And so Moses, being a descendant of Levi, um, He's the son of the third oldest, but still disqualified family. It's not impressive. It's weakness. It's meaningless. Of course, it's not just that. He's born of the line of Levi, but he's also born into hiding. He's born hidden away from the Egyptians. For three months, his mother tries to keep him hushed. Can you imagine the stress of trying to keep a a one-month-old baby quiet in your house as Roman soldiers or or Egyptian soldiers are walking outside the doors? It got harder and harder. His cry got louder. And so at the three-month point, they said, we got to do something. So they hide him in the river. Just a genius plan. Probably kept him, I'm guessing, in the house at night and then um, would take him down to the river when the Egyptian sentries were out, or maybe they had some kind of warning system among the mothers that they could send a, a message, hey, they're, they're coming, and she could quickly whisk him down and hide him in the river. But the word for basket there is really interesting, and, and maybe you'd pick it up. There's this basket that's daubed with bitumen and pitch, and you go, that sounds familiar. And if you were reading this in Hebrew, um, you, you would catch this in a moment. Uh, the word is teva, the word for basket. And that word is only used one other place in Scripture. It's used throughout um, Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And the word is ark. She placed him in an ark in the river. The picture there is this absolute dependence on God. God, save him. I'm putting him in an ark and putting him in the water just like Noah, absolutely desperate for you to save, to rescue this baby. And this baby, uh, hidden away, stashed in an ark, floating among the reeds, is not guarded by his strong father or maybe a a strong brother, uh, but watched over by a sister, probably Miriam, who we meet later on. Um, Moses' father, probably off working in one of the camps, It's a mother-daughter team from an insignificant family trying to protect this child against one of the most powerful nations the world had seen. Helplessly trusting God's care and provision, placing him in the river. God's rescue, this reason for hope, comes from the most unlikely of places. God works through weakness. Of course, the same story plays out as it comes to Jesus, doesn't it? Born of a young woman of no account. Born under dubious circumstances, out of wedlock. Hidden away from Herod who killed all of the baby boys. We're told there was nothing special to look at him. Nothing. He was not impressive. 
He worked as a builder for 30 years. When he began to teach, uh, those who knew him grew indignant. Who is this? This is Jesus. Like, we know him. We hung out with him. We know his brothers and sisters. Why does he think that he's so important? Why is he speaking authoritatively? He was nothing special. Even to the point of his death, he didn't bring salvation the way the Israelites had hoped with power, defeating the Romans, establishing a, a government. He did not call down the 12 legions of angels that were at his disposal. He brought God's great rescue through humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. And even through his last breaths, the mighty soldiers stood arrogantly and mocked him and gambled over his clothing. The Pharisees stood off proud in the distance. We won. We put down this foolish rebellion. That's God's design. It's how he laid it out. God loves to work through weakness. And he uses that deliberately to, to exclude the proud. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Look at 1 Corinthians 1.21. Paul writes, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The world didn't come to know God through their wisdom, through their great thinking. But it was God's plan through the foolishness of preaching that he would save many. Um, I don't know if it's true, um, but I've heard that, that scammers, the guys that phone you at dinner time and send you relentless emails, that they actually intentionally use uh, poor grammar and, and ridiculous logic because they just want to screen out anyone who's even a little bit perceptive. Right? We don't want to waste our time with people who are at all discerning. Um, we just want the really gullible people. So let's just, you know, let's just filter them out right away. And it's kind of the same with God. He's not looking for the gullible, but he's looking for the humble. He's looking for those that are okay to follow a crucified Savior. Those who are, who are willing to lay down their pride. And God continues even to this day to work out his plan through weakness. Maybe you feel that personally. I'm nothing special. I'm not impressive. How am I going to reach my friends, my, my co-worker? My, how, how am I supposed to lead this family? I, I'm not up to this task. I'm unimportant. Can I be a, a significant piece of the church of Christ? I'm like Levi. I have, I have big deal sin in my past. Can God use me still? Paul continues in 1 Corinthians down into verses 26 to 29. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Wow. Are you a little bit foolish? A little bit lowly? A little bit made fun of? A little bit despised? I'm not, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. Have hope. God delights to use the weak. Like, this is good news, guys. 
Step out in faith. Maybe it's good that you doubt your own ability to walk in faithfulness, to walk in obedience, to do the things that you know God is calling you to do. Do you ever think of that? That maybe God would actually not use someone who was smart and strong and talented and impressive precisely because they were smart and strong and talented and impressive. He sets them aside. Those people would just brag about what they had done and the world looking on would say, yeah, that makes sense. He's a pretty impressive guy. He did some great things. Maybe God wants to use you specifically because of your weakness. And then everyone around you and yourself included would have to just step back and say, hey, God did that because I don't, I don't have that. That's not me. That's not my thing. That's exciting. Be encouraged by that. Stop using the excuse that you're weak. How often do we just check out? That's what God is asking me to do, but I can't do that. I'm too small. I'm too weak. Stop telling yourself that you, that you can't because you're too insignificant. That's exactly the kind of person that God intends to use. Those who are weak and humble, but who are willing to trust Him and just step forward in obedience. We have hope because God works through weakness, through a gospel that looks like utter foolishness and through people who are just weak. On the other hand, maybe you need to let this humble you a little bit. Stop trying to be so strong and impressive. Stop trying to put on this face as if you've got it all put together. There's so much pressure right now, even in the church. Boy, for parents, like, have you, have you read the new Paul Tripp book? And are you doing, you know, gospel-centered parenting? And do you homeschool and feed your kids with organic... Uh, avocados and, and you doing it all right and you do soccer and baseball and hockey and, and oh man can't keep up with that like gee whiz our house is a disaster uh, our kids are running every which way we're, we're trying to shepherd them and it's chaos what do you do you read your bible every, like at least an hour in the mornings and and two hours in the evening and, and are you are you spending you know four hours in in heartfelt prayer gee, take a breath take a breath we stumble along. We falter our way. That's the way God designed it. We strive towards some of those things, but boy, God wants to use the weak. He's not looking for perfect people. I'm sorry. If, if, if you've got it all together and your house and your life are just firing on all cylinders, maybe this just, just isn't the church for you. You're not going to fit in here. Maybe you can stick around. We can learn from you. Um, but if you're just a fighting along tooth and nail trying to Trying to get through this, boy, we can link arms. We're, we're on the same page. I, I walked up to Josh this morning and literally just said, hey, our house is a mess and we have nothing in the fridge to eat for lunch. You want to come over? Um, so we're going to figure that out as we go. Um, it's great. We're going to get home and say, kids, quick, get the like, wet uh, outside clothes all off of the banister and try to make the house presentable. That's life. That's the life we live. Relax. Jesus was perfect. We want to strive to be like him, but he doesn't call the perfect. We have hope because God works through weakness. Secondly, we have hope because God works through wickedness. This one's a little harder to swallow, I think. Look at verses 5 to 9. Let me read these for us. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. 
And then the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrews, uh, from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And so the girl went and called the child's mother. Whenever I heard this story in the past, uh, it, it, it seems almost as if um, that this is the way it was set up to be, right? That they almost like kind of floated the baby out under Pharaoh's daughter's nose and that was the plan that she would find him. I don't think that's the case as I look at this. Um, I just don't see it. Maybe, maybe that was it. But, but I think they're just trying to hide this baby. They're trying to keep him safe desperately. I can't see Moses' mother thinking that this would be a good idea to have her son found. Certainly not by someone from Pharaoh's household. Certainly not in the river already. In the instrument of death. And it's presented somewhat haphazardly. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the river. Whoops. It's just strange turn of fate. It's unexpected. But either way, she finds the baby. She has pity on him. And I think it's just quick thinking on behalf of Miriam to offer someone to get a, to offer to get a nurse to, to nurse the child. It would make sense if, if baby boys are being thrown into the river. There are going to be a lot of Hebrew women who could do that job. So Pharaoh's daughter agrees. And now all of the sudden, not only this baby protected by having been adopted into Pharaoh's own family, but he's provided for, and, and Moses' mother is actually getting paid to raise her own child. And I think that's what we see through these verses, is this reversal. It's God's sovereignty, not only over Pharaoh and all of his wickedness, but right through the middle of it. We can have hope because God works through wickedness. I think often when we talk about God's sovereignty, particularly when we talk about evil and we talk about painful things in our lives, we talk about how God can bring something good out of suffering, but I think we keep those two separate far too often. So that thing happened and that was bad. But look, this thing over here happened and that was good. I don't think we go far enough. I think we still miss the full extent of how God works. And and this passage closes the gap that, that we're a little bit uncomfortable to close. Israel was suffering under the wicked hand of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was doing unspeakably evil things to the Israelites. And God doesn't just do something alongside that evil. He doesn't bring something else good from the outside. He, he actually works right through the middle of it. He actually uses the very wickedness of Pharaoh to carry out his good plan. He's not rolling with the punches here. He's not responding to Pharaoh trying to make the best out of a bad situation. The wickedness of Pharaoh is actually an integral, inseparable part of God's plan. The irony in this passage is just thick. Every turn it displays how completely powerless Pharaoh is and how absolutely perfectly in control God is and how God takes the things that Pharaoh is doing and just turns them right on their head. Um, I do not think this is exhaustive, but let's just pick apart a few of the reversals that happen throughout this passage. Pharaoh intends the river as an instrument of death for the Hebrew children. And it becomes the instrument of salvation for Moses. He's, he's thrown into the river and saved. 
Pharaoh commands the Hebrew sons be thrown into the river and the daughters be kept out. And it's Pharaoh's daughter who goes into the river. And actually the word is the same. as She sends, it says she actually, she casts her handmaiden into the river and the Hebrew son is brought out. Pharaoh commands his people to be ruthless with the Hebrews and it's Pharaoh's daughter who has pity on a Hebrew boy. Pharaoh set out to hurt the Hebrews physically and economically, and precisely because of that command, Moses is both protected and provided for under his own roof by his own money. So the overarching theme is that the very command that Pharaoh uttered in order to discourage and destroy the Hebrews is exactly what God used to bring about their salvation. It's the old proverb of your destiny meeting you on the road that you take to avoid it. Everything Pharaoh did was turn back against him. He is so helpless in this process. He is absolutely under God's divine sovereign plan. And it's his own decree. It's his own actions that are responsible for creating the man who would do the exact thing that he sought so desperately to avoid, give Israel an identity as a nation and grow them in strength to the point that they would overpower Egypt. God isn't responding to Pharaoh. He's not working some secondary way to try to bring about good through evil. No, as the Lord will later point out to Pharaoh directly, Exodus 9, 16, the Lord says to Pharaoh, but for this purpose, I raised you up. Wow. For this purpose, I raised you up. I put you in this place to show my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord brought this out. He put Pharaoh in that position. The Lord was not only over it from the beginning, he was was right in the middle of it. Now this takes us to uh, the base of one of the greatest mysteries in theology. And I think we just got to stop and stare this one in the face. This is a doozy. If you're going to watch Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or one of these guys try to tear apart Christianity, this might be where they start. The problem of God and evil. If God is good, why is there evil in this world? It's a tough question. If God is perfectly good, if there's no hint of evil in Him, how can it be that He actively ordains and even uses evil as part of His good plan? Is God the creator of evil? Is God guilty of evil? He's planned it. He's using it. And yet he's not at all evil. He's not at all guilty of evil. Now, some people would say, well, he didn't create evil. He created free will. And and presume that that answers the question. I don't think it helps. At best, I think it puts a name on it, but I, I don't think it answers the problem. God is all knowing and he's all powerful. And he both knew and was able to create a world that was different. He, he could have done it differently, and he knew how, and he, and he didn't. Heaven will be a place where we have human will and no sin. It's possible. He could have started there, but he, but he didn't. He created Satan. He created Adam and Eve knowing full well that they would sin and being able to create them in a different way. He could have created them so their synapses would have fired differently and they would have made a different choice. Couldn't he have? 
but he didn't. And the question is, is God, one, too foolish to have avoided it? Or is he too weak to have done it differently? Or is he too cruel to have done it differently? Or is there another option? And the other option, I think the biblical option, is that not only is God working in spite of these things and around these things, he's actually using them. He's actually part of, they are part of his glorious plan. Not a lot of people want to go there. It's uncomfortable. I get that. I feel that. I don't think God tries to avoid it through his word, though. And that gives us great hope. Because God is at work through wickedness. He uses the wickedness of Pharaoh to raise up Moses, to rescue Israel, to display his glory in this magnificent way. But of course, I think we see this the most clearly, and we get our our best answer here at the cross of Jesus. I think even those who would kind of go for this, well, free will, that's God off the hook argument, would still say, well, Jesus is different. I don't think Jesus is different. I think Jesus is the place where we see how God works. It's the most pure, heinous evil that was ever perpetrated on this earth. Done to the only person who only deserved good. Done to the only person who did not deserve hell and suffering. And it's not a coincidence. The cross is not plan B. According to Revelation 13, 8, he is the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. He is plan A. The cross was in God's mind prior to creation. I think Acts 2.23 gives us the closest thing that we'll ever get to an answer in this life. It still leaves our minds stretching. But in Acts 2.23, Peter is talking to the Pharisees and he says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of wicked men, lawless men. He says the death of Jesus was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He he doesn't double down, he triples down. It's definite, it's his plan, it's his foreknowledge. And it was carried out at the hands of lawless or wicked men. God made certain that it would happen, and wicked men accomplished it. Now, look at this. For one and the same action, God is infinitely praiseworthy, and man is absolutely condemned. Every evil part of that act lands squarely on the shoulders of those who freely carried it out by their wicked desires. And every glorious saving result is only and completely owing to God who sovereignly ordained every detail. We would never say to the Pharisees or to the Roman soldiers that they accomplished our salvation. And we would never say to God that he was wicked for the death of Christ. Uh, Probably messes with your head a little bit. It ought to. that, That God sovereignly oversees the desires and choices of people. Does it mean we don't have free will? Well, No, we make choices. We have an amount of freedom. And God is sovereign over it. And in Christ, God worked through wickedness as His 
tool to bring about the eternal salvation of countless sinners and the single greatest display of His glory into eternity and our joy. I ought to take verses like Ephesians 1.11 and put them kind of a new perspective. In Him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Romans 8.28, For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to His purpose. All things. He's right in the middle of it. Now we just need to stop and address the fact. Some of us here this morning are able to look at this objectively. And we go, isn't that neat? You see how God works in and through suffering. Some of us don't have the luxury of objectivity right now. You don't get to talk about evil in a theoretical way. You don't get to talk about suffering and pain in a cold way and dissect it. You're staring down that reality. You've been cut deep to the heart. You have scars on your soul from deep pain. You've been left feeling crushed under the weight of evil. I encourage you, find hope in this truth. Lean into that. I know that's easier said than done, but God works through even the evil things in our lives. That doesn't make it any less evil. Let's be careful here. It doesn't mean that those who hurt you are, are any less condemnable, any less guilty before God. There will be a judgment day. And they will be held accountable for how they have hurt you. But we ought to find hope in the fact, both personally in our own lives and on this cosmic scale, God's not helplessly watching evil, lacking power to change it. He's not just trying to make the best of it. He's not reacting to it, wishing that it could somehow be different. He's not too weak to stop it. He's not too wicked to stop it. He's not too foolish to have done it a different way. He's sovereignly, graciously, lovingly working through it. That can be a hard reality to face, but trust me, you'll find far more comfort and hope there than in any of these lesser versions of God. He's a terrifying God who's just trying to roll with the punches and make the best of it. And it's just not the God of the Bible. He does weep with you. He feels your pain. He despises the evil done to you more than you do. But he is sovereignly working through that. And, and maybe we won't see it until we stand the other side of glory and be able to look back and say, okay, I get it now. Now I see what you were doing through that. We have this unshakable hope because God works through weakness and God works through wickedness. And then finally, we have hope because he will save his people. He will bring us out from that wickedness in the end. Look at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because he said, I drew him out of the water. This was kind of the typical practice. Um, there actually are ancient documents from uh, Egypt and that area describing these kinds of contracts. Um, 
when a, a foundling child, an abandoned child would be adopted and they would hire a nurse to care for him. And, and because the infant mortality rate was so high, um, they, they would stay with that nurse for like three to five years uh, and then be adopted and then be brought into the family. And at that point, she names him. She names him Moses, uh, which would be a, a Hebrew version of the Egyptian name. Um, like when I go down to Mexico and they call me Juan instead of John. Um, but the name means drawn out. Because she says, I've drawn him out of the water. And this is the heart of the great promise. This is that sun beginning to rise on the horizon. Um, I don't know how to explain it without getting into some theology terminology. I hope you're okay with that. Um, If you were to join a motorbike club, you would soon learn some motorbike terms that I would try to use right now, but then somebody would laugh at me. Um, if, If you were to join a dance crew, you'd start learning some dancing terms that The rest of us know nothing about. If you join the church, you're going to learn some church terms, and they're helpful for us. Um, This might be a new one for some of you. Um, But but what we see here is corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity. As to the one, so to the many. It speaks of a, a group of people represented by one person corporate, like a corporation. It's, it's everybody together, solidarity, singularly united, standing with that one individual. Let me give you an example from scripture. Um, turn over to Romans 5. We're going to spend a little bit of time there, so just keep your finger there. And When you think I've left it, keep your finger there. I'm coming back. Romans 5, verse 12. I'll give you a second to turn there. Oh, that's why I could not make sense of it. I flipped right over to 1 Corinthians and I was panicking. Romans 5, 12, there we go. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam sinned, it was not simply a personal act. He sinned as our head, as the head of the human race. And we have corporate solidarity with Adam. And so when Adam sinned, we were implicated in that sin. It was as if we all had sinned. Every descendant of Adam, that's all of us, every person in the human race has this corporate solidarity with Adam. And we were born into the guilt of sin. We were born into, you could think of it as a nation at war with God. As to the one, so to the many. And here we see Moses. He's cast into the river. He's he's put into this place of darkness, a place uh, desperately needing God's rescue. And he's drawn out of the water. His very name speaks of deliverance. And Moses, as the leader of Israel, stands in corporate solidarity with the nation of Israel And the fact that Moses is drawn out and is protected and provided for, God is saying to his people, this is what I will do for Israel. I will draw you out. I will protect you. I will provide for you. And just as Moses is drawn out of the water, I will draw my people out of slavery. And when they come out of slavery, how do they come out? They come out through the water. They come out through the sea. As to the one, so to the many. Now here's where it gets really cool. Remember I said this isn't just about what God did then, but it's about what he is doing now. 
Who else has a name that speaks of deliverance? You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Jesus, the name, means Yahweh saves. And as Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience and as he died on the cross, he died in corporate solidarity. Now, not with all mankind, not with just Israel, but with his church. With his church. He, he, he was thrown into the river of God's wrath on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul writes, For I have been crucified with Christ. That's corporate solidarity. When Christ died, I was put to death. My sinful self was punished. Christ was not left in the grave. He was not left in the grave. The rescuer was rescued. He was drawn out from death welcomed into heaven, seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean for those who have corporate solidarity with him? Back to Romans 5. Look at verse 17. For if by one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, all men in Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. We had all men in Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In corporate solidarity with Adam and his sin, humanity is cursed to hell. And we, let's not kid ourselves, we willingly, joyfully walk down that same path. And in corporate solidarity with Jesus, this new humanity, the church, is made alive by the cross of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. And what is the symbol of our having been united with Christ? What is the picture of our corporate solidarity with him? It's being cast into the water of baptism and drawn out again. Keep going in Romans down into chapter 6. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death and we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It's corporate solidarity. It's our union with him. United with Christ, symbolized in baptism, it's a, it's a promise. We can be confident that as to the one, so to the many. That if Christ Jesus was brought through death and raised to eternal life, freed from sin and suffering, that we will experience the same. We will be finally rescued. He will draw us out. This is the story of Moses. This is the story of Israel. But this is our story. The hope of Israel. God working through weakness. God working through wickedness. And God saving his people. It's the hope that we have. And baptism isn't the only picture of 
our corporate solidarity that we celebrate together. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. As we come together, as many partaking of one loaf, as many drinking from one cup, we, we represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ for us. It's our corporate solidarity working out, put on display. We declare, I'm with Jesus. I'm with him. Because he died, my sins are paid for. And because he lives, we too shall live. What a great promise that is. What an amazing God we have.